Welcome to this episode of The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders has been around since 1983, serving churches by working for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches according to the Word of God. If you'd like to know more about Founders, you can find all the information you would like to know at www.founders.org. Graham, it's good to have you with us again today. Graham Gundon, if you've not met Graham, is assistant pastor here at Grace Baptist Church and has also helped out Founders. You've served Served as our master of ceremonies at national conventions and uh, have been very involved behind the scenes in a lot of things as well. So grateful for your sitting in with us today. Grateful to be here. You know, we can't do what we do at Founders Ministries without those who support us, who pray for us, and who financially help us to produce the content that we're committed to producing. And we have a way that you can do this on a regular basis called the Founders Alliance membership. If you'd like to know more about that, just go to founders.org and you can check out ways that you can help support this ministry as we try to promote the recovery of the gospel and biblical reformation in churches. We do have our national conference coming up in just a few months in January the 20th through the 22nd of 2022 right here in Southwest Florida. Great place to be in the middle of the winter. Graham, you're from Michigan. That's right. Right. So, uh, yeah, so January in Florida (laughs) is, uh, far preferable than January in Michigan. That's right. It's a great time to take pictures and send back to all your Michigander friends and family saying, Hey, what are y'all doing today? You know, right. (laughs) Uh, We did that when we first came down here, we uh, called everybody we knew after we went to the beach on Christmas day and uh, came home and said, Hey, what'd y'all do today? We went to the beach. So if you haven't signed up for the conference, encourage you to do that. In fact, uh, if you will sign up before the end of, of this, week, which this episode is coming out on the 12th of October, 2021. And so the 15th by that, or let's do it the 16th, Saturday, the 16th. If you sign up for the conference, we're going to send you a copy of Vody Balkum's Fault Lines book, which is a blockbuster book. It's been uh, on bestseller list despite efforts by some major distributors to kind of downplay it or not carry it. But uh, Vody's book has been clarifying for so many. So if you'd like a copy of Vody Balkum's book, Fault Lines, and you're planning to come to the Founders Conference, go ahead and register this week and we will send you a free copy. Well, today we're delighted to welcome back to the Sword and Trowel, one who's not a stranger to those that have been uh, listening to this podcast for a while, Rod Martin. Rod's a, a dear friend and brother, a fellow servant in Christ Church, does so many things. He's, he wears a lot of different hats. He's an entrepreneur, futurist. Uh, he's involved in the biotech world. Um, Rod, always good to see you. We love you and Sherry and appreciate the way that uh, you conduct yourself in the business world, the way that you've been involved in political uh, activities as well in the United States, but especially in the way that you have involved yourself in your local churches where you served and in the Southern Baptist Convention. So welcome to the Sword and Trowel. It's wonderful to be here, and it's always, always an honor to get to be with everybody at Founders, but especially you, Tom. Well, thanks, brother. And uh, man, we've been praying for you these last several weeks, especially. And the reason we wanted to have you on today is because the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention has been so much in the news the last few weeks. And you sit on that executive committee. Uh, you have been a part of the uh, smaller executive, uh, I don't know what you call that, executive committee of the executive committee, but the, the officers the of the officers executive committee. Yes. Yeah, the officers of the executive committee until recently, and you stepped down from that again due to some of the pressures and things that are going on. And there are a lot of pastors and church leaders that are wondering what's happening. I I get phone calls and emails regularly now saying, we just don't know uh, what to make of the executive committee. And I know Graham, you and I've talked a little bit about this Mm -hmm. and uh, our elders here at our church have some questions and, and I try to stay fairly well informed, but a lot of the things, a lot of the accusations and the, um, uh, the public, statements that are being made about the executive committee leave many Southern Baptists with questions. And so we want to have you on as a guy who has been living through this. And let's just start off by uh, telling us what's the, what's the perp, what is the executive committee? Um, this, a lot of people are not Southern Baptists who watch this podcast, listen to us. And that's great. That's fine. The Southern Baptist convention 
I say is not that important, but it really matters because it impacts what goes on in the evangelical world in the United States and really around the world through our missions agencies as well. So if you're a Christian, uh, an evangelical Christian, you should be concerned about what's going on in the SBC, even if you're not Southern Baptist. So tell us what the executive committee is, Rod, what its functions are, responsibilities, and then uh, you, how you've been involved in this last few years. Well, it absolutely does matter. And and in response to that, I, I think the best answer would be to give a really fast uh, civics lesson on Southern Baptist life because, you know, lifelong Southern Baptists don't understand how this right. works. So, mm-hmm. so just very quickly, the Southern Baptist Convention is not a denomination in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. There's no hierarchy. There's no top-down anything. What the SBC exists to do, like your state convention, is to administer the money that our churches give to do ministry, missions, seminary education, pensions for retired pastors, etc. So, so really, we're just a stewardship operation. That is our entire reason for existing, and nowhere more so than the executive committee. The executive committee mostly exists to administer the distribution of those funds out to our six Southern Baptist seminaries, the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, and so forth. The uh, uh, And of course, we have a couple of entities that don't really require any money from the cooperative program. Guidestone uh, handles pensions. It handles mission dignity, which takes care of uh, aging widows of, of pastors and and uh, other people who are who are appropriately deserving. Lifeway, of course, used to have stores in a lot of towns. Now it's entirely online, but it, it produces Christian materials, Sunday school materials, and so forth. They don't need cooperative program money. They they actually make money, mm-hmm. uh, and and at times they give money to other Southern Baptist causes. So we're we're very grateful for that. But the seminaries educate a third of all the seminary students in this country. We only have 11% of the churches in this country, but we're educating a third of the seminary graduates in this country. They really matter. And what what they are teaching day in and day out really matters. The International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board collectively uh, field the largest missionary force in evangelical Christendom uh, all over the world. It is, it is an extraordinary body of work that is made possible by that sweet little widow lady on the next to the last pew writing out her tithe check in her shaky hand out of her social security every week. And so it's a sacred trust. It really matters. And it really matters that people be involved in it sufficiently to safeguard the direction of our theological education and of what we're doing on the ground around the world. Mm. Yeah, well put, well put. So you serve on this executive committee, and here in the last several months, really uh, even before the convention uh, that met this last summer uh, in Nashville, the executive committee was uh, in the news quite a bit, but especially since the convention, the executive committee has been the talk of uh, denominational life or SBC life. So t- tell us what happened. I mean, wh- what's going on? What are the concerns about the executive committee and what happened in Nashville to heighten those concerns? Well, what happened is Russell Moore. As you know, Russell Moore, who used to be the chief ethicist of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, ha- was head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the last several years. Uh, suddenly resigned at the end of May, and on his way out, in typical disgruntled employee fashion, he carpet bombed his his employers on the way out the door. Uh, there were two allegedly leaked letters, which were obviously written for the purpose, uh, which uh, made all kinds of absolutely uh, non-specific but incendiary allegations, specifically of of a rape culture and mm-hmm. sex abuse at the executive committee. Now, mind you, he didn't name a single name. He didn't tell us about any specific case happening. He didn't tell us about anybody doing anything. He didn't tell us about anybody who might be abused. He also didn't tell law enforcement 
which is a crime if it's true. He says in his letters that he had been sitting on this now for 18 months. To this day, he has not filed a police report. He has not named a name. So if this rape culture exists, I'd like to know why Russell Moore is personally with his board of trustees, especially his chairman, David Prince, covering it all up. We don't know one more thing about his allegations than we did the day he said them at the end of May. But this focused a lot of attention on the EC because Russell Moore has a following. Yeah. And so so the, the uh, folks in Nashville, uh, for perfectly good reason, asked for an investigation. I support that investigation. I think it's important that we find out the truth. And I think what you're going to find out is what I just said, that there's nothing there. But at the same time, the scope of the investigation was designed to go back 21 and a half years because there are a bunch of people in Russell's orbit who want to find ways, I'm sure, to attack past members of the executive committee they don't like, mm -hmm. such as mm -hmm. Paige Patterson, such as Augie Bodo, such as Jack Graham such as Steve Gaines at Bellevue in Memphis. Uh, I find it a little odd that the person carrying that motion was Grant Gaines, Steve's son, when he knows his father has a sex abuse scandal at his church. But nevertheless, he's in the crosshairs now. Hmm. So all of these things are, are going to be compiled by an outside firm, Guidepost Solutions, uh, they were recommended by Rachel Den Hollander, who is the chief consultant to the task force appointed to steward this, this investigation. They were appointed by Ed Litton, the new president. And so, so that's going to go on between now and about a month before the convention when this report will be released. Uh, it, is, it is interesting to hear the representative from Guidepost speak of these things. It, it's very, very clear that she and, and Bruce Frank at the task force are assuming guilt and, uh, and maybe they'll find some, if they do, then let's find those people and string them up. That's I, I'm totally for that. I am not for, and I fought against an additional aspect of this, which was the demand for waiver of attorney client privilege. Yeah. Hey, let's I post solutions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go I, ahead. I mean, I want to talk about that, but I want to, I want to make sure we're clear on these uh, leaked letters by Russell Moore. Uh, have you read these letters, Graham? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you read them when they came out. I mean, I read them. I think they, they released one after the other in early June, right before the SBC met in its annual convention in Nashville. And uh, Mike Stone, who had been the immediate past president of or the, the chairman of the executive committee, was one of the candidates for president of the SBC, uh, as was Ed Litton and Al Mohler and uh, Randy Adams. And so there were four candidates. Uh, Mike was implicated in Russell's letters. I mean, again, it, it looked like a political hit job to me. And that was my first reaction too, Rod, when I read Russell's letters. Uh, this is what he says. It, 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 these are quotes from his letter. He wrote this letter to his officers of the Board of Trustees of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in February of 2020. So the timeline's important. So this is 16 months before the June leak of these letters. And here's what this said to his executive committee of his Board of Trustees, including David Prince, uh, the chairman of the board, who's also a professor at Southern Seminary. And these are quotes. He says uh, that someone from the executive committee said, we can take you down. This is psychological warfare. Well, name that person. Who is that guy? Yeah. He said that there's a group within the executive committee that want me to provide cover for racial bigotry and child molestation. N name that group. Who are these people? Yeah, uh, indeed. I mean, he, he goes on and, and he makes these statements about uh, SBC executive committee members have a culture where, and this is a quote, Countless children have been torn to shreds. Countless children have been torn to shreds by a culture created by the executive committee and where, this is a quote, women have been raped and then broken down. Mm. Okay. He, in February 2020, he's writing this, so he must have known about it beforehand, and he, it doesn't become public. The executive committee or the, the David Prince gets this email 
in February 2020 and does nothing with it? This is the head of the Ethics Committee, the Ethics Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Mass Convention, and he says these things are going on. He didn't call the police. He didn't blow a whistle. I'm, like, I'm thinking, what? forget ethics. Are you a man? Yeah, well, that, you know, the cardinal virtues, courage used to be seen as the first of the cardinal virtues, and now it's the lost virtue. Yeah. To, to make these accusations without saying who's guilty of them and, and who the victims are. And, you know, he says there's a there's a culture of, of rape within the the Southern Baptist Convention, the executive committee. Well, he's perpetrating that culture That's of right. rape if it's true. If the, all these things are true because he's covered it up, he's a part of that culture of rape. Yeah. And do you remember... Um, I think it was probably about three days before I left for the Southern Baptist Convention. And these accusations had come out and uh, Phil Betancourt had released those audio tapes right. saying, here's the smoking gun. This is, this is, these are the recordings of uh, what Moore is talking about. And I remember listening to those recordings where you, thinking this was going to be the smoking gun. I listened to, I think there were four of them. Mm -hmm. There was nothing, nothing there. Nothing there. Nothing Zero. there. Zero. I know. And I talked to people, Rod, at the convention who told me that they were going to vote for Mike Stone until Philip Bethencourt released these uh, smoking gun audio files. And they read what Philip said was in them, but they didn't listen to them. I asked them, have you listened? Had you, did you listen to it? Well, no, you know, I didn't have time. I said, all right, go back and listen to them, and then you can repent, you know, at your leisure. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And, and this is a classic political tactic. Pretend that you have the evidence put out evidence that you know no one will listen to. In October, now, surprise. Who's going to sit there and listen to these audio files yeah. of meetings? Yeah. Which, by the way, speaking of ethics, Philip Bethencourt agreed at the beginning of the meeting in question that it was an off-the-record meeting, and he wow. was sitting there taping it, wow. for heaven's sake. And if there really was a smoking gun there, he should have taken that tape all those months ago and handed them to the police. That's right. But he didn't. He waited until it affected an election, and there wasn't anything in that audio. What he said was in the audio. What he wrote that people actually did read was 180 degrees yeah. from what was actually in the audio. Yeah, and, and wasn't he like the number two guy at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission? What? Yeah, so he was he the number two. He, he and Russell go back many, many years, and he has been he has been Russell's hatchet man for a very long time. So, I mean, this, this just, when I read the leaked letter, I'm thinking, well, Russell Moore should be implicated in this. And yet nobody took it that way that I saw online. None of the, mm -hmm. the spokespeople in the SBC, none of the leaders that, you know, we typically look to as trusted voices. Uh, they all, Oh my goodness. You know, the executive committee has created a real monster and we've got so much problems in the executive committee. And maybe we do, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we do, but, but, and Ooh, let's hunt them down. Sure. Let's but get rid of them. We definitely have problems in there. But where's the beef? <laughs> yeah. Russell did not allege a single serious, individual, specific accusation. Not one. Right. Philip Bethencourt didn't either. Yeah. Philip Bethencourt took shots at some of his political enemies, but he did there's no there's no discussion of who was uh, harming children at the EC. There's no discussion of any of this. And the most important thing is there's no police report. Yeah. If these people knew this, they have a legal obligation to turn specific people in and they yeah. still haven't. I said 18 months ago, a minute ago, I, I'm losing track. I guess we're now 20 months, 20 months past when Russell wrote that letter. And as you know, Tom, there has since been a whistleblower at the That's ERLC. Right. That's right. Jonathan Whitehead, who is who is a Harvard-trained attorney, sits on the board of the ERLC, put out a letter just a week or two ago in which he details his behind-the-scenes discussions with David Prince, the board chairman, Russell Moore, all of these people, and how they didn't have anything. Yeah. It was intentionally political to change the outcome of the election at the June meeting. There was there was no truth in it. And, and Jonathan's gone on record now. It's, it's on his law firm's letterhead. It's, it's freely available out there. Do you know how many stories Baptist Press wrote about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting. <laughs> Zero. You know, and yet when, uh, when Russell's stuff leaked, it was instant. When Philip Bethencourt stuff leaked, it was the same day. I mean, mm -hmm. so what's going on? I mean, again, I, 
I don't know what the truth is, but here's what I do know, that we as Christians ought to be principled people. We ought to want to know the truth, and we ought to want to pursue justice in the light of the truth, and we ought to resist every attempt to be manipulated into things that are not true and taking actions that are unwarranted because they're not built on truth. They're built on speculation or falsehood. And yet that's exactly what I see going on. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, Rod, help me with the, uh, the timeline here. Um, the investigations in large part are coming about as a result of the accusations in Moore's leaked letters, correct? That's, that's the only reason I'm aware of. And before these leaked letters, were there not um, three different investigations into the ERLC by different task forces of the executive committee? I'm personally aware of two. I've heard okay. three in the last few days. I'm, I'm not sure which one the third was. But yes, there were two. Two specifically that I'm aware of from the executive committee. Bear in mind that I only went on the executive committee in 2019. And, uh, and yes, I mean, Whitehead says plainly that this was retaliation for mm. uh, the task force. Hmm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So, Rod, you uh, you mentioned you brought up this waiving of attorney client privilege, and it seems like that was kind of the the sticking point in the negotiations between this task force. And I think the, the task force has hired Guidestone. Is that the name of the investigating group? It's Guidepost Guide, Solutions. God, I don't it, want to get Guidestone in trouble. <laughs> so, Guidestone Financial, but, but no, Guidepost Solutions. Guidepost Solutions. And so there was negotiations between Guidepost Solutions, Task Force, and the Executive Committee about coming to terms of how this investigation could be conducted. And uh, the waiving of attorney-client privilege, at least that was the, the public framing of the sticking point. I'm sure there had to be other things behind the scene, but could you, could you just elaborate uh, what went on in that and, and what decision was made and uh, maybe reasons why it was made and, and what, what the implications of that are? Well, ultimately, uh, the, the EC officers uh, spent two weeks negotiating with the task force to try to find a way that would accomplish everything that was on the table. So, so the original motion offered by Grant Gaines and Ronnie Parrott at the, at the annual meeting called for the employment of best practices uh, to include the waiver of attorney-client privilege. Well, of course, waiving attorney-client privilege isn't a best practice. It, it's not a standard practice. It's malpractice. <laughs> and we had, we had five of the best lawyers in this space in the entire United States advising us, one of them uh, a former nominee for the United States Supreme Court, who all, without exception, said exactly what I just said, that they've never seen this done. They've, they've all been involved in similar investigations. We have an EC member who's an attorney from Virginia who led a sex abuse task force for the Department of Justice. All of them said this is never ever done. This is this is horribly wrong, and it it, it causes all manner of problems. You can't hide a crime behind attorney-client privilege. The, uh, to say otherwise is just mm. it's either a mistake or a falsehood. All right, let me uh, ask you a question about attorney that. Attorney-client privilege exists so that you may speak privately with your lawyer about trial strategy and and various things that really would be prejudicial to the process and, and would, in the absence of the privilege, cause you just not to seek legal advice at all. So for the functioning of the legal system, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld attorney-client privilege as a means to make sure that both sides are getting the best advice they can get. And then Actual evidence of any wrongdoing is never, ever subject to that privilege. That's just mm. not how that works at all. But this was what the other team wanted. And, mm -hmm. so, the, and so the executive committee sought to both satisfy what they wished, but to do it in a way that would not cause collateral problems. Now, here's the central problem. The central problem is that waiver of attorney-client privilege is grounds for the insurance company to void our insurance. Mm. We were advised, because, hey, none of this is privilege now, so I can say it, right? We were advised plainly by not one, but five separate attorneys that the result of this would almost certainly be not merely voiding our insurance, 
but making the entire Southern Baptist Convention uninsurable, not just Mm -hmm. now, but for the foreseeable future. Now, what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, it means that there's a limited pool of money at the executive committee. And if there really are victims, who's going to pay them? Mm. I mean, that's a real problem. The executive committee has its budget. We're actually exceeding our budget. Uh, the, The EC employs three employees that I'm aware of that are paid for by the North American Mission Board because Ronnie doesn't have enough money to pay them. And, and that's a whole nother legal issue that is worth exploring, I might add, yeah. but we can get into that later. The problem that we have there is that if you start tapping into that money, there's, there's no room in it. You're going to have to start firing people and eliminating the function of the executive committee very, very rapidly. The EC does have some cash reserves. We just tapped 1.6 million of those to fully fund the investigation. By the way, first thing we did, first vote we took on this investigation was to fully fund it at the top end of their estimate. So they didn't give us a budget. They don't have any idea how much they're going to spend. And I'll guarantee you it'll be more than that. But at the top end of the estimated range they gave us, we fully funded it unanimously. That's how corporate program dollars at work, right? (laughs) Right. But we're really trying to cover things up here, as you can see. Mm. Um, But if you don't have the insurance, then the rest of those resources that are probably going to get expended on the investigation are also going to be needed if there are victims. And then there are some investments uh, at the Southern Baptist Foundation. And I don't actually have a bead on that, but it's not a huge amount of money compared to the size of these kinds of claims. So mm-hmm. so assuming there's guilt, and I'm not assuming that, but assuming someone's guilty of something and the executive committee is liable, who's going to pay them? Mm-hmm. The insurance is there to take care of exactly that. And yes, it does matter because the rest of this money is supposed to be going to missionaries Go into go into ministry, and so you're actually cutting in to the 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 sinew, the the bone of what the SBC is even there for. Some people say, well, you know, if it's if it's a nest of evil sex abusers, then burn it all down. Right. Well, if it is, maybe so, but I don't think that's what the messengers voted on. I don't think that they were presented that choice of. If they're guilty people, let's get rid of them versus if they're guilty people, let's destroy the SBC. That wasn't in the motion. Mm. That wasn't on the table. The second thing that I would say about this that, that's really fundamental to why you don't want to blow the insurance, and that was what we were really voting on. If you blow the insurance, you incentivize plaintiff's lawyers to do corrupt things. Now, the way that works, and again, it isn't privileged anymore, so we might as well just say it. They know, believe me, the plaintiff's lawyers knew when they helped Grant Gaines draft his motion. What this is really about is the minute Guidepost Solutions builds that discovery file, which will then be subpoenaable by any plaintiff's mm-hmm. lawyer. Mm-hmm. Once they have that, you're going to have a bunch of lawyers who smell money and they're going to say, ah, you know, even if I have a bad client, even if my plaintiff isn't really that convincing, I know how to get these guys. So they're going to take the fact that all these individual people are uninsurable and they're going to sue them individually. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Floyd's going to get sued individually. The secretary for Ronnie Floyd is going to get sued individually. The tri-vocational pastor who, you know, preaches at his church, he's the associational missionary and he drives a truck to pay for it, who sits on the executive committee, he's getting sued individually and they're going to bankrupt him with legal fees. They'll never get to trial. And what they'll do is at the point where those people cry uncle, they'll put a settlement agreement in front of them and say, look, ha, we can make the we can make it stop hurting. Yep, yep. But you sign this document. That document is going to say something like connectionalism. And for your viewers who don't know what that is, all of our entities are completely separate from one another, and they're all separate from your state convention, which is separate from your church. Yep. But 
they're going to try to coerce these guys into saying under oath that that's not true so that they can file one lawsuit against the EC and they can get to the resources in your state convention's treasury at the Florida Baptist Children's Home, at Guideposts, uh, Guidestone, where the pension money is. That's what they're going for. Now, will that succeed? I think there's a very good chance that fails, but we just risked it for no good reason whatsoever. And I want to stress, when I say we, I mean them, because I did not vote for that. I did not breach my fiduciary duty to the convention. And my fiduciary duty to the convention is about 100 years older than the motion that was passed in June. Mm. We had a duty to do what the messengers said and what the law says, and we failed to do both. Yeah. And we could have, you know, Rod, I, I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this uh, don't have the kind of context that you have living in the world. You do having a law degree, seeing these things work out in varieties of situations. And I, I'm among those, but I have seen it a little bit. I've talked to guys who have been treated exactly the way that you described, where massive resources are brought against them to sue them, to make them cry uncle. I mean, even having been told, we know you're not guilty. It doesn't matter. We're going to bring you to your knees. We're going to bring your children to their knees. And until you sign this document, it's going to continue on. And and then we can walk away in five years and it won't hurt us, but you'll be ruined. And we had this happen almost to our church about 30 years ago uh, during a vacation Bible school. This was before my time. Yeah, that's right. Long before (laughs) your time. Uh, And uh, one of our uh, members brought some neighbor kids to VBS and that afternoon she called and said after the VBS was out, she said, uh, my neighbors say that their daughter uh, was abused by one of the teachers at VBS. And so, man, I mean, I panicked. And so we went into uh, emergency mode and we started calling everybody and tried to get in touch with the parents. I couldn't. So I told the member who was neighbors with us, look, tell them to take the child to the emergency room. You know, we'll pay for all the medical expenses, but we want this, you know, because the, the arm was severely damaged and the abuse was what, what the claim was. Uh, so called uh, the police and told them, you know, this is accusation been made. We started taking depositions, called our insurance company and they came and said all right you you back out so we'll handle it from here and so an investigation began to ensue I, I tried to meet with the parents finally they would meet with me several days later uh, they came in to see me they want me to come to them and uh, man I mean they were they were pretty sketchy and just said look we're going to sue you for everything you're worth uh, we're not going to tolerate this I can't believe you let this happen to my daughter I talked to the lady who supposedly was responsible she had witnesses adult witnesses with her there was no way this could have happened according to, to my investigation the investigation taking place by outsiders and uh, when the dust started settling the insurance guys came and sat down with me and they said all right said uh, pastor here's how this is going to work so they'll sue us for or sue, sue your church for about $150,000. This is 30 years ago. Said we will settle with them for about $90,000. It'll go away. And I said there's no there's nothing happened. I'm convinced nothing happened. I said we're not going to pay a dime. I said I'll rot in jail before we pay a dime. And I'll never forget what the guy said to me. He said Reverend said uh, with do all due respect, he said this is out of your hands. This is why you pay us. We know how to make these things go away. I'm thinking yeah. Great. You pay $90,000 on a bogus claim to make it go away. And I was incensed by that, but they were thinking, this is just the way you do business. And so, yes. yeah, you know, I mean, you get these. Wait, in the process, you look guilty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You did so, not get your day in court. You didn't get anything. But on the other hand, it's so expensive to get to court that the insurance company is making a perfectly rational decision. Now, how does that work when you don't have insurance? And it's some trivocational pastor right. having to pay for it out of his own pocket. Now, now, of course, somebody will come back and say, well, the executive committee uh, in its bylaws indemnifies all of the members of the EC. And, and I don't know this, but I presume the staff also. Um, well, that's true until it runs out of money. Yeah. yeah. And claims can be huge. Terry Balea, whom you know as Hulk Hogan, he's a neighbor of ours in Clearwater. Uh, Terry Balea sued Gawker for one, one instance of unlawfully breached privacy. Terry won a $140 million judgment in Florida state court, brought down Gawker, one of the biggest mm-hmm. media properties in the world, 
So don't tell me these claims can't get insane. The Boy Scouts just paid $1.9 billion in their settlement. The difference, of course, is Terry Belia was actually wrong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the Boy Scout case, the Boy Scouts brought in gay scout masters, gay scouts, girls as scouts. You're going to put a bunch of gay and straight, male and female teenagers in tents together at Jamboree. They were passing out condoms and, and then you expect no abuse to happen. I mean, this is just insane. They deserve what they're getting. Gawker deserved what it got, but here's the part nobody mentions. Terry Belia's legal fees alone were $20 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry, but a bunch of trivocational pastors aren't able to pay $20 million to their lawyers just to get to their day in court. And that's what voiding the insurance means. So, so, that, so it's just crazy. It, it's, it's a horribly wrongful thing, and it's illegal because it breaches the legal duties that trustees of a fiduciary body such as the executive committee are held to by the laws of the United States and the state of Tennessee where we're incorporated. So so all around, this was a very, very unwise thing to do. So, Rod, is that why uh, we're seeing some executive committee members resign? I think I saw like eight, maybe more have resigned. All of the accountants had to resign immediately because their firms made them do so. They are not allowed to vote against the legal advice given to a nonprofit board on which they serve. And they can't be part of this for a variety of ethical reasons that have to do with their profession. Several lawyers I know have resigned. Several other people have resigned. I'm fighting with my lawyers right now. I would like to stay, but the fact is I serve on a decent number of nonprofit and for-profit boards that Mm. will be affected by this. Don't think that the other side didn't know that would be one of the results of this because they completely did. However, it's important to know that they were too clever by half because while they bounded the, the guidepost investigation within the dates uh, January 1, 2000, and the day before the new trustees took office. Mm-hmm. How convenient. <laughs> a plaintiff's lawyer will not be so kind. Hmm. A plaintiff's hmm. lawyer doesn't care. Huh. So when he just sues a bunch of them, they're going to be so shocked and they're not going to understand how, oh, wait, you mean fiduciary duty actually was a legal duty and mm. not just something we threw around that we didn't understand? Yes, it turns out it's actually a legal duty, and, and you're all liable now. Wow. And and on that one, the people who voted no are not liable. So, you know, it, it won't help in the, in the bigger picture. But all of this... All of this is a willingness to burn the place down. And if you go on Twitter, you have seen a thousand tweets now that literally say, burn it all down. Mm -hmm. There is a willingness here to burn down chunks of the church purely to gain politically. Russell attack his enemies like Mike Stone, Ronnie Floyd. Other people try to take Ronnie Floyd's job. Other people go after the conservatives to replace them with some woke people. Everything here except the truth. And the way you know that is simple. 20 months later, Russell Moore hasn't named a single Mm -hmm. person who was abused. Not one. There is still not a single allegation. 20 months later that Russell said he knew about in February of 2020. Not one. And when that comes, we'll start to hear some truth. But the truth is, if he were telling the truth, he would be a criminal Mm. because you're not allowed to cover that sort of thing up. The issue is not what the messengers or the EC has to say. It's what the law says. And these things are criminal acts if they happened. So why was he not on the phone to the Justice Department? Why was he not on the phone to the Attorney General of Tennessee? Why was he not on the phone to the police? And he wasn't. And no one has been. And that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, it, it seems that it's it's clear that the, there are two parties. There's the accused and the accuser, the, the EC being the accused. And the spotlight's being shown on the EC. They, they're 
guilty of great wrong and they're not being transparent about it. That's, that seems to be mm-hmm. the public message going out there. But what's happening in reality is that the accuser, i.e. Russell Moore, and I'm not talking about um, if there are real victims, that if they're making accusations that they're lying, but Russell Moore, he's either guilty of breaking the second commandment or breaking the ninth commandment. Either he's just lying, breaking the ninth commandment, bearing false witness against the EC, or he's not preserving life and doing whatever it took to protect these victims that he knew about. Mm. And, and there's no, not only is there no transparency from the accuser, but there's no calls for transparency from the accuser. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I stress, I supported the investigation because once those allegations were out there, we clearly need to know if they're true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they're false, we clearly need to clear the names of good men and women who didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I'm not sure which one of those is true. I think the second is true, but an investigation clears the air. An investigation shows again that there is nothing to hide. Not that not that we think we have nothing to hide, but that there's actually nothing to hide. And there might be something to hide, and we want that uncovered. I'm there. And by the way, I don't think there was a single member of the executive committee who did not say at some point that they wanted the investigation. What they didn't want to do was breach their other duties at the same time. If the insurance goes away, where do you pay the victims from? And there was a whole lot of talk about how, oh, we don't need to worry about money. We just need to do the right thing. Well, we've got scripture about that. That's the be warm and be filled motion. (laughs) Do you actually want to take care of the victims? Are you actually caring well if you don't have a way to pay them? And so, so yes, these things matter. And it is a biblical standard that we have to uphold. Okay. Rod, I want to ask you a really pointed question here. To your knowledge, has there been any cover-up of any sex abuse by the executive committee? Absolutely not. Now, is there? I don't know. But to your knowledge. To my knowledge, knowledge, and I'm I'm the only EC officer who put out a statement to this effect, and I I don't know where, where some people's courage has gone. We have a lot of people contacting me, and I know you too, saying, you know, this all looks like a sham. What on earth is happening here? But they don't want to say the hard things in public where it counts, where the other side is more than happy to say absolutely anything. But I've gone on record repeatedly in many different fora saying, to the best of my knowledge, these are good people who did nothing wrong. To the best of my knowledge, none of the things being alleged took place. Now, to be fair, I've only been on the EC for two and a, not even two and a half years yet. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I didn't witness things that might have happened in 2007. Right. But to the best of my knowledge, the people who are uh, alleged to have done this or that thing, first of all, there's no specific allegation against them. Second, there's no victim claimed to exist, you know, that, that we've been told about. And third, I just believe these are honorable people. I haven't seen them do anything that would suggest anything of the sort. Take, for example, Mark Ballard, who was chairman of the bylaws working group uh, that was that was very briefly handling some of these issues before we went to the annual meeting in 2019 and created a an enhanced credentials committee to take that role over. Well, those guys deliberated. There were there were a bunch of people there, and the content of their discussions primarily centered on how do we create a permanent structure like our now existing credentials committee without violating Baptist church polity? Because we are a group of 47,000 independent churches. They don't have to comply with anything we say. Mm -hmm. We don't have subpoena power. We don't have any way to make them do anything. The only power we really have is to kick them out of the convention. So how do we square what we're being asked to do with what we're capable of doing. Those debates, uh, I wasn't present for them, then they were in executive session. But the men and women involved in them are, are outstanding people, all of them, and all of them had different points of view. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the motion that was passed in June, it actually calls for the uh, exposing of anybody who obstructed reform efforts 
Well, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. Does that mean that you thought we aren't Presbyterians or Catholics? I mean, does that mean you didn't want to build a top-down order to satisfy Rachel Den Hollander? I, I mean, I, I really think that looks like the Salem witch trials. It's it's ridiculous. And yet, you know that's what's coming. There mm. will be a report that attacks yep. good men and women for having debated, do we have the legal power to do the thing we're being asked to do? Yeah. And and we're seeing that with the attorney-client privilege deal also. Mm. There's about as much fairness in this as there was to Brett Kavanaugh, and it is of about the same quality of accusation. Hmm. So, Rod, what does this mean for the future of the Southern Baptist Convention? We're in a dangerous time. I mean, if, if the trial lawyers pounce on this in the way that they normally do, the SBC is going to uh, be blessed primarily in the fact that I don't think there's anything there to find. Mm-hmm. You know, if there are some, if there are some actual victims here, then so be it. And we need to deal with that. I wish we had left a better way to pay them, yeah. but because they deserve recompense if, if they exist hundred percent, but it, it, but this is dangerous and it's going to take wise people in positions that matter. And it's going to take broad engagement by the Baptist in the pew to save the SBC because clearly we have, we are increasingly handing control to people who have said publicly that they're willing to quote, burn it down. And I just don't fathom that. I don't understand that. It does not matter how much, uh, how much we might wish to take care of, of those who are wronged if there are those who are wronged at the EC. And again, I, I don't think there are. But if there are, whatever we have to do for them. But that doesn't mean we need to stop doing global missions. Right. That doesn't mean we need to stop supporting churches across America. If, if there are bad people in positions of authority, we need to remove them. But why would you actually go out in public and talk about burning down the church? Yeah. Unless you just hate the church. I, I, I don't understand that. Well, I can tell you that uh, before Nashville, I was getting this since the Nashville annual meeting. I'm getting this uh, two or three times as often. Pastors contacting me and saying, you know what? We just can't stay. Our membership is demanding that we leave the SBC or our eldership is demanding that we bring this before the church. And so it, it's happening now several times a week. I'm getting contacted by people who, some of whom have been long time Southern Baptist. One pastor of a church has been Southern Baptist over a hundred years. And he said, with tears. It's an old we, pastor. Yeah, well, no, the, the church, the church, not the pastor. And said, uh, with tears, we have just voted uh, to leave the SBC. And I get it. And, you know, I, I mean, I understand the struggle. We've had the struggle here in our own church thinking through how do we serve the best that we can given our relationships in the Southern Baptist Convention? What does that look like going forward in the future? So, Rod, what would you say to a church or pastor who said, man, you know, listening to this podcast, I'm thinking, why in the world would we want to stay in and have our cooperative program monies go to be mishandled in the way that you've just outlined? They could really be mishandled. Why should we stay in? What do you say to a church like that? Well, for now, we're not quite there. And I want to stress the executive committee gets 2.99% of the cooperative program budget at the national level. And uh, unless you're in just a handful of states like Florida, the, the overwhelming majority of your cooperative program money stays in your state. So, so don't forget that. And mm-hmm. if you want to designate your giving around the executive committee, you absolutely can. Uh, the SBC Constitution is on sbc.net. It's easy to find. Look for Article 3 of the SBC Constitution, and you can see very easily how to designate your giving in a way that, that doesn't go where you don't want it to go. Now, I'm horrified to say that because right. I'm a believer in the cooperative program 100% and, and always have been, and we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the cooperative program in 2025. So, so that that's terrible, but it's important that we save this. It is vital that we save this. We educate a third of the seminary graduates on this continent. We send the biggest missionary force in the world. If, if it weren't for Southern Baptists, much of the good 
that happens in this world for the gospel simply would not be. It is, it is a tried and true system, and it has been shown to be resilient in the face of internal and external attack over a great, great many years. Mm. It's not perfect, but you won't find perfect in this life. It is, it is essential, and if it weren't essential, you wouldn't see the enemy coming against it so hard right now. Mm. So I urge people, not only don't leave, but turn out. Mm-hmm. In an average year, only 7.2% of Southern Baptist churches are represented at the annual mm-hmm. meeting. And if you want to know how things got to here, that's how. The Baptist in the pew isn't represented at the annual meeting. Yeah. Now, this year, it was a little bit different. We got up to 11.9% of our churches represented at the annual meeting. What did 11.9 thousand churches, maybe? We had. Uh, whatever that number yeah. works out to be. But as you know, it worked out to 16,000 messengers in the room instead right. of the normal 8,000. Right. It was phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it was it was really tremendous. And yes, we elected a man who, who has some significant ethical issues as president. Mm-hmm. But if we had flipped just 300 votes on the second ballot, we would have elected a courageous, courageous man who, by the way, is himself a sex abuse survivor. Mike Stone, pastor of a little church in Georgia, not a mega church, but a big church for his town. It's a town of about 3,500 people. He's got 1,100 people at his church. It's an amazing thing. He's a fantastic pastor as well as preacher. And he was our candidate for president of the SBC, came first by a wide margin on the first ballot, but didn't quite get over 50%. And so so on the second ballot, if we'd flip 300 votes, he'd be president of the SBC, and this would all be going very differently. This is what happens when people turn out. If people withdraw, they will get exactly what they predict to happen. This will burn down. Terrible things will go on. And to the degree it doesn't, you're going to see more and more wokeness out of the seminaries say, well, that doesn't matter. That's the next generation. Wrong. Right. And nobody Hezekiah about it anyway, but wrong. Because these days, we don't want learned, uh, uh, experienced men in pulpits. We're hiring 30 year olds to lead mega churches. And so, what happens at the seminaries affects this generation immediately. What happens at the mission boards affects this generation immediately. It affects them on the field. It affects them at home. These issues matter. The reason we're having this discussion, in my opinion, since Russell can't identify a single actual allegation, all this vagueness that he only speaks of right before an election, obviously something is wrong with that. In my view, it was a lie. The reason for that is because he is trying to shift the narrative and succeeding at the moment, shift the narrative from the very real problem with cultural Marxism in our institutions towards something that is, forgive the term, sexier and headline grabbing. And that has not actually changed the reality in the seminaries and elsewhere. We are still facing an infection of wokeness and it is affecting the viability of not just your church, but of many, many churches beyond the SBC who depend on our seminaries and depend on our our entities generally. Yeah, well, Rod, uh, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but I, I want to just say something that I've, I've written about uh, publicly and that our church is now doing. Uh, if you're a Southern Baptist church and you've been given the cooperative program, which most Southern Baptist churches do because we've trusted the leadership, we've trusted the process, we appreciate the genius of cooperation in accomplishing things that we can't accomplish by ourselves. My recommendation is this. We've got a annual meeting coming up in Anaheim in June of 2022. And as Rod said, we need to turn out. We need to have messengers from churches go there. And if your church has been given to the cooperative program, I would encourage you to take money that you have normally given to the cooperative program, set it aside and pay 
for messengers to go to Anaheim in order to vote to stop this nonsense, to make your voices heard. Most Southern Baptist churches are not having a voice in the national level of our association as Southern Baptist churches. And yet Southern Baptist employees are having their ways paid there by your cooperative program dollars. And many of those have been instructed about how to vote. As the Washington Post said uh, last, in about the last election, how the North American Mission Board brought in church planners with clear intention to vote for Ed Litton. So it's already happening. Your cooperative program money is being used in this way. You might as well do it more effectively. Because mm-hmm. if we don't get messengers there to stand up and say, we're not going another step in this direction, and we want justice, we want righteousness, we want God to be honored and feared, then be assured that the money that you're giving will continue to be used for some of the nonsense that we've talked about today, rather than and putting everything at risk to help spread the gospel around the world. So I know that's an extreme measure, and hopefully we won't have to do it for more than a few years, but we need messengers to turn out in Anaheim in 2022. So Rod, let's close with this. What do you think could happen in 2022 if 50% of Southern Baptist churches were to send just two messengers, which every Southern Baptist church gets simply by virtue of cooperating with the SBC? Well, if, if every Southern Baptist church sent two messengers, we'd have 100,000. Yeah, what about if 50%? If, if 50% sent messengers, we'd have 50,000. Be record-breaking. Look, I see poll data all day long. Southern Baptists are not woke. They're not even close. Not, I mean, not even you know a large minority is woke. Well, maybe a large minority of, of a certain clique of millennial pastors but not the Baptists in the pew. Mm -hmm. They're overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conservative and orthodox. So, you know, they might have all kinds of arguments about whether they are uh, post-mill, pre-mill, or pan-mill, but they believe in the God of the Bible. They believe in Christ and him crucified. They believe that adding to the gospel is a sin, Mm. and they certainly don't believe in the false gospel of cultural Marxism. So, so if they just turned out, everything would change. But look, 50% won't turn out. We know that. Yeah. But there's no reason 20% couldn't bring four messengers. There's no reason that 15% couldn't bring six or 10 or 12. And so my one caution in what you just said is, you know, if, if you're thinking about doing what Tom just said, go to sbc.net, read Article 3 of the SBC Constitution, make sure that you haven't changed your giving in a way that reduces the number of messengers you're able to send. Right. But by all means, set aside money to help send messengers. I would encourage many, many of your listeners, who I'm sure are not pastors, just pony up yourself. Hmm. You know, I started going to the Southern Baptist Convention when I was a starving college student. Nobody ever paid my way. Nobody ever paid my way. Uh, the executive committee picks up my hotel now. I, I won't even turn in a voucher for my travel because, because it matters. It's something we do that matters. This is our service to the Lord. It's mm-hmm. by, certainly not our only service, but it's a big one. We're called to be stewards. How much does Jesus talk about stewardship? This is the biggest stewardship matter that we face. This is the stewardship of the resources the widow's mites that have been given to us to propagate the gospel. There's very little in this life that's more important than stewarding that money for that purpose. So I encourage everyone, I implore everyone, turn out and don't think that we have to lose because it's in California. Mm-hmm. First, that's just silly. But second, think again, look back to the conservative resurgence years. We had a convention in Los Angeles, we won. We had a convention in Las Vegas. We won. We had a convention in Pittsburgh. We won. It is perfectly possible to win a road game. And there's no reason that we have to give up the ship just because the geography is unfavorable. Get yourself to California and steward the Lord's money. Mm. Steward the Lord's seminaries. Steward the Lord's mission boards. This matters. Amen. This is now. And we, our church, we're giving to the International Mission Board. We're giving to disaster relief, taking the money we were doing for cooperative program, and we're going to try to help 
provide ways for members to go as messengers as well. Well, Rod, thank you so much for uh, participating in this. We appreciate all you're doing, and we know, man, you've been under the gun and the whole executive committee, and there's a lot of confusion, and uh, we want the truth. I mean, I, I think I can speak for a lot of Southern Baptist pastors and church members. We just want the truth to come out, and we don't want to be manipulated by those who shout the loudest, who have figured out the system and how to game the system so that they can shut down voices who have things to say that could help us come to the truth. And, you know, Graham, here at our church, we, we talk a lot about the gospel, and we want to never assume the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so what does the gospel have to do with all of this? I mean, these are not issues unrelated to the gospel, because we cooperate with other churches to proclaim the gospel around the world. International Mission Board sends the gospel through workers throughout the world. And if the SBC gets hijacked by those who have a political agendas or those who are just mistaken, let's just give them the best motives in the world, but they're just mistaken in their understanding, then that's going to impact the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Southern Yeah, the, the proclamation will be just as effective, but it'll be a proclamation of a false gospel. That's right. That's right. So it matters. It matters. Well, Rod, thank you, brother, for being with us. And uh, we're going to put in the notes with this podcast a lot of the documents by John Whitehead that he released in his whistleblower letter and also a wonderful article that uh, came out in the Louisiana Baptist Messenger that talks about this most balanced article I've read about all that's going on so that you can become better informed. And uh, Rod, we'll pray for you. Thank God for you. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you.